Right. Right, so Pete's going to continue in our series on uh, assurance. So let's pray for him. Lord, we ask for Pete that you'll give him the words to say, that he will hear from you, that what he has heard from you as he has been preparing this time, you will enable him to convey to us. But also, Lord, we pray for our hearts and minds that you will open them to hear from you, that you would speak to us, and also, Lord, that not only would we hear, but would then go and put into action. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. So we're hearing Mike talk about RM Swale. I think it's something like there's a raffle or something we're going to Let's see. Um, yeah, so this morning we're going to continue our current series, uh, which is on assurance, and we're working our way through 1 John. Uh, and the title I've been given for this morning is God is Love, which is very fitting. I think it fits with what God has been saying this morning and already doing through us this morning and talking to us about. And I'm going to be looking at 1 John 4, verse 7 to 21. So if you want to turn there now, and we'll read that in a moment. But there's three main areas that I want to focus on with this. Uh, I want to look at God is love. It's actually, I mean, it's a massive topic. And I could only even begin to scratch the surface of that this morning. But I just want to to help us start to understand actually what does that mean? What does that phrase mean? uh, And help us engage with that. Secondly, I want to look at our assurance. Uh, And there's specific things in this passage that actually give us assurance in our salvation in God. So that we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear about the day of judgment and what's ahead in our lives. But actually, we can be confident in God. And thirdly, I want to look at what I've called the fruit of perfect love. Uh, and there's two areas of that that I'll focus on. The fact that perfect love removes fear. And secondly, that perfect love reveals God. So first and foremost, let's start by reading this passage. So it's 1 John 4, verse 7 to 21. Should be yeah, lovely on the screen. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he cannot see. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There's a heck of a lot, a heck of a lot in that. And it's, it's, it's been a challenge working out actually what, what to share this morning and what to bring this morning. And I have to say, after last Sunday, I was, I was really encouraged. Uh, as a part of my preparation for this on the Saturday, I was praying about, God, what, what do you want me to bring out of this passage? What do you want me to share? What do you want me to, to yeah, what is it? What is it that you want to do this morning? And I just felt God was talking about, I want to talk to you about growth in our church. And I was like, okay, I'm not quite sure 100% how that fits with this at the first, but I wrote that down on my notes. This is something that I feel God wants to emphasise. Uh, and then just last Sunday, hearing the testimony about Adam and Lizzie moving on, but then Sam coming up and speaking about God knows what's happening in our church. God's been speaking for a long time into the fact that we are going to grow, but also to the fact that before the growth comes, things are going to get smaller and things are going to be shrinking and we're going to be sending people and there's this pruning happening. Uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that a bit later, but it's just amazing knowing that God is love and that he is for us and he has a hope and a future for us. So my first section I want to look at is God is love. Every day, millions of people ask Google life's biggest questions. And if you look on Google, you can find out the most common questions asked. And one of the most common questions that's been asked in recent years is, what is love? This tells me that we're living in a world of people that are eager to know and define what love is. I, I get the feeling that people know that they should be loved, that love should be in their lives, that love should be a part of their lives. And as we look at TV and, or magazines and things like that, lots of things are about love. Even the dreaded, dread, yeah, dreaded Love Island. <laughs> I've not seen that myself. And some people seem to love it, some people seem to hate it. But it's, the, the world tells you it's about love, isn't it? There's all these different things. We watch films about love. We read stories about love. Love is this big thing. And I think it's because there is something within us Something which is because we're made in the image of God and we've been made for a relationship with him, this understanding that love should be in our lives. So no wonder why people in the world are asking this question, what is love, and trying to define it. People are searching and searching for this answer to this question. And as I say, they have this love-shaped void and they're trying to understand what it is that something is missing from their life. And that's the funny thing, isn't it? there's so much of the world is geared towards telling us what love is and what love should be and yet it's still the most popular question is what is love? And I find myself coming back to that question at times actually what is love? Love is a massive term isn't it? There's various different meanings of it but what, what is love? So I want to start by just trying to help us unpack what that means and I'm just going to read verse 7 and 8 again Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So here, the love John is talking about isn't the love that you find in the average love story. Isn't the love between families, between mother and daughter, between brothers or siblings. Isn't the love that we find between friends. 
And John's been very deliberate here, very deliberate in the choice of words he's used for love. And we've heard it spoken before. But actually, the, the word John uses is agape. It's a Greek word, and it means, and we just translate it as love. And it'd be very easy just to read it as love and put our definition of love on that and the definition that the world puts on that. But actually, it's very important for us to understand that John isn't the only New Testament author to use agape, to use that to describe love. And it, there are different words in the Greek that describe it, and these different words that describe love describe that family love, describe that romantic love, describe that love between friends. But agape was not common in the Greek culture. That love was not a common term used all the time. It was there, but the authors of the New Testament have specifically chosen that word to get something across. But this love transcends our understanding of love. It's not the everyday love that you find in the world around you. It's a love that defines him. By that I mean defines God. In as much as he is love. To see, feel and touch this love is to see, feel and touch him. To see this love is to see him, our God revealed. So as this love can only be found in God, you can only love in this way yourself if you know God. God is love from eternity past to eternity in the future. It is the very essence of God. It is at his very nature. It's always been expressed in the core of the Trinity. But what I mean by that is the Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. The Spirit has always loved the Son. And the Spirit has always loved the Father and so on. It has always been there and always been expressed perfectly. It is in God's very nature. And because of that, it's in everything that he does. If you take the Bible, I should have one up here with me really. Um, but if you take the word of God, if you read it, every single thing that God does in that is expressed through, through love, through a tender heart, through caring. So God is not just a judge, but he's a loving judge. He's not just a creator of the world, but he's a loving creator. He is not just a father, but he is a loving father. This love has always existed and will always be expressed through every part of God as he is love. So let's start to define this love. What makes it so different from the worldly love? I just want to read verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what this verse is saying is that God's love has been manifested among us. Um, another way of saying that would be God's love is clear among us, or obvious among us. And this is how. It was by sending his son, his one and only son, his beloved son, into this world that we might have love through him, or a life through him. This agape love is not motivated by something we have done, it's not in reciprocation of us loving him. There's nothing we could do to earn that love. In fact, the Bible tells us he loved us before we loved him. You see, actually when Jesus sent his son to die for us, we were stained with sin. We were degraded. The Bible actually talks about us as enemies of God. We were living for ourselves and not for him. And as enemies of God... 
we were due to suffer the full wrath of God. Because the penalty of sin is death and spiritual death. And so that is what we were due. So this, this love of God sending his only son to die for us on the cross, this is a self-sacrificial love. One that gives without judging or precursor. It's not to get anything in return. But it's because God wants the best for you. He actually wants the very best for you possible. We have these dreams, these visions of what we think is best for us. I think it's better for me in life if I get a Fender Strat. Or just some sort of guitar like that. Apparently five guitars is enough. (laughs) I'm not sure. But this came at a cost. (laughs) This came at a cost. You see, and this love is expressed no matter what the cost. And I say no matter what the cost. Because this love came at a huge cost. If we look at the word propitiation, to define what it means, in the ESV study Bible it says, when it's in this passage, it's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favour. Sometimes other words put in your translation that aren't propitiation. But actually that doesn't, that doesn't cover the fact that not only is God's wrath born, on a, uh, but it's turned to favour. So a sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God and turning it to favour. So as I've already said, we are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. And although God is love, he is also holy and just. And we can't be in right relationship with him when we are stained with sin. So like I said, we are enemies of God. And so when judgment comes, when judgment day comes, as it stood and as it stands for many people in the world, we will be judged according to our sin. And even though God dearly loves us and cares for us, the result would be eternal punishment and the wrath of God in hell. This is, a, this is really serious. But it's not all doom and gloom. Because as I said, God sent his son to be propitiation for our sins, that we might have life through him. This means that God sent his son, Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice to pay the price for our sin. Because we couldn't pay the price for our own sin. It's very easy to think, if I, if I tell this person over here about God, actually, that's a good thing that I'm doing. If I, if I give this person over here, maybe there's a homeless person, if I pay for them to have a hotel room for the night, if I buy them a drink, if I stop and talk to them, if I show them, show them love, I can, I can do these good things. And the amount of times I talk to people who aren't Christians, and they're like, I'm a good person. I might have done things wrong in my life, but I don't regret those decisions because it's brought me to where I am now and I know I'm a good person. And they, they can't get their head around the fact that if God is love, how can there be so much pain, so much suffering in the world, specifically for children? How can there be so much pain and so much suffering? And he's right, it is hard to get our head around this. It is hard for us to understand this. But we live in a fallen world due to our sin, due to us putting the created thing before God, before the creator. We're putting ourselves first. And it's unfortunately naturally within us to do this. So we can't 
We can't make up for the sin in our lives. There's nothing we can do, no good work we can do to make up for that. And God knows this. And God even knew this. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, to in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the apple. Well, I say apple, fruit. I say fruit, I don't know I did that. <laughs> Should have done that for apple. Um, but from then, and God cast them out of the garden. And there was repercussions for sin, wasn't there? Pain in childbirth. Being a gardener, I particularly resent the fact that there's thorns and weeds to grow and that grow and we have to deal with these and we have to try and get rid of these and it's really difficult. But that's all a part of sin and all a part of being in a fallen world. And God said, even then, that there's a great rescue plan. And his great rescue plan was Jesus to come for us, to pay for our, our sins as the perfect sacrifice because that is the thing. It had to be someone who was sinless like a lamb led to slaughter for us to pay the price for our sins. And that's what Jesus did for us. And not only did he suffer the full wrath of God, and actually as we think about that, in that moment, Jesus on the cross suffering the full wrath of God for us, he was separated from his Father. So actually, as I was saying earlier, that this love, this perfect love that has always existed between Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. But there is this perfect union of always being together. And I know that for me personally, I'm happiest in life when I'm with the people that I love and sharing life with the people that I love. And that is a moment that the Father couldn't share with the Son. Because the Son had to pay the price of our sin. But the amazing thing is, and in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. He has given us his righteousness. Going back to that definition of propitiation, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favour. And yes, it was a sacrifice. It was a great sacrifice. But the wrath that was due for us, the punishment that was due for us, Jesus has taken and has turned it to favour that now we may be called children of God. Now we may come before God with confidence, with uttermost joy. As I came to the front earlier to share that passage from Jeremiah, you might have seen my son Ezra came running to the front to be with me. He was welcome. We, we didn't have that access before, but we do now. It's amazing. And I think what this demonstrates is love is an action. <coughs> earlier on, I think Mike was meant to have preached on it last week, um, so he didn't quite cover it. But earlier on in the book, in chapter 3, in 1 John chapter 3, it says that love cannot be just spoken about, but it is deed and truth. It has to be outworked. We cannot just be a church that say we love one another, say that Jesus loves the world, and just tell people that. But it has to be demonstrated. And actually what Joy was saying this morning, it fits perfectly in fact, doesn't it? We, we can take this opportunity as a church and we can give poppies to people, take donations for that. 
But it's an opportunity to love people and love in action. So agape love, as I've already stated, is a self-sacrificial love that gives undeservingly and unreservedly. It's without judging, without precursor, not to get anything in return, but says, I want the very best for you, no matter the cost to me as I carry you in my heart. In verse 11, John goes on to say, the logical conclusion is this. If God loves us with this kind of love, and in this way, and we have tasted of this love, as Christians, surely the logical conclusion is that then we love in that same way. And we love one another in that same way. In fact, John goes beyond that. And in verse 12, he connects with what he's saying there, with 1 John 1.18. So verse 12, I'll read it again. It says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And in 1 John 8, in, yeah, one, yeah, not 1 John, in John 1.18, it says, No one has seen God, but Jesus has made him known. So there's this God, the invisible God, that no one has ever seen. Jesus came, and through the way he lived and demonstrated his love, made the Father known to us. And here, John is saying that as we live for him, as we live in this love, we also make the Father known to those around us and to the world. So if we love one another, it reveals God in us. And his love is made perfect in us when it is replicated in us. I'm not going to go into detail now of maybe what this love looks like for us. But I just encourage you to think about that. And maybe over the coming week, think about that. One pause of thought might have been Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That was love demonstrated. And the interesting thing with this passage here, whenever I read it, I wanted to read it as God is saying, this love is for us to display to those out there, to those who don't know Christ. But the funny thing is, specifically here, and I'm not saying we aren't to show that love to those out there, but specifically here, John is actually referring to us in the church. This is to be the hallmark of us as the church, almost like the badge we wear is the badge of love. That people, it should be the thing that defines us as a community. And you can think, Pete, why aren't you saying Jesus or God should define us as a community? But as we're living this way, living in love, that reveals God. That is God at the centre. With God at the centre, we will live this way. And as people look in and they see a community of love, a community where we're committed to one another, to putting each other's needs before our own, they will see God. They will see him. And that will lead to growth. So you can already see why I was getting excited about growth. But God wants us, God wants us to have this love evident in our lives. So as I just said, it reveals God in us. And this love is, God's love is made perfect in us when it is replicated in us. And this leads us nicely on to the next section, which I want to talk about, which is our assurance. I'm going to focus in verses 13 to 16. So let's just read them together again now. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So we've, we've started to understand a bit about this radical love that the Father has for us, that God has for us. We see that as his children, he wants us to walk in full assurance of our salvation and our relationship with him. God understands that we are frail. I find it funny that I can have the most amazing encounter with God one day, and even by that evening, feel distant, feel almost depressed or far from God or... There's that classic thing, isn't it? We go to a conference or we go to, to a bigger event and we get riled up and we get so excited about God and we're like, life is going to be different from here on out. And very easily and quickly, we fall back into, into normal life. And I think that's the trouble. Is so often we allow normal life to get in the way. This isn't in my notes, but I remember one year when I went to... Um, New Day. And I just kept encountering God again and again every day. So much so that I I got the reputation that I was just late from every meeting. Like, I felt bad that I was laughing on the floor, giggling during someone preaching. But I didn't feel bad, I was having a great time. (laughs) The reality is, though, I learned that I can encounter God just as powerfully at home, away from that meeting, as I can there. And I think it comes back to that verse that I read earlier. That as we seek God with all our heart, we will find him. God is always with us. He is always with us, church. And don't get me wrong. I'd still much rather meet together in community and worship there and encounter God there. Because God is for us and it's about us being the body of Christ together. But there is this sense that we can encounter God in everyday life. And we can walk with him in a powerful way. And in a way that shines him forth. So God understands we're frail. And he knows that we need reminding that we're frail. That we will forget what he's done for us. That one day I might read that God has died for me. And given himself for me. And suffered the full wrath of God for me. And I might, it might bring me to tears. The next day I can read that and it doesn't affect me at all. It's, it's the reality. So the reality of being human is that we're, we actually have to fight for this truth. We have to fight the gospel into our lives day after day after day for it to be impacting us day after day after day. I remember, I've just been reading a book by um, Timothy Keller. And it's about preaching. And in it, I, I almost... I know we never get fed up with the gospel and it's amazing but I think it's when, I, when I'm preparing a preach it's easy to think, always point to Jesus dying on the cross and what he did for us and it can almost get repetitive can't it like the same songs, if we're always singing the same songs it can get repetitive and almost harder to engage with can't it sometimes we need something fresh something just to stir us a little bit something like someone prodding the fire uh, just to get the, get the embers going again and blown into it and in this book it said every time we preach as long as you preach Jesus from the passage it will reveal him in a different way in the gospel a different way every time and we will never get bored of it 
I was like, wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. And that's really stuck with me. And just that fact of every time we spend... So I'm going off piece a bit. But every time we spend time in his words, let's look to see what that says about Jesus there and says about us there. And every time we will have the fire in us kindled and see God in a new way because the gospel will never get boring. And I think God has done that for us because we are frail and we forget. And we forget what he's done for us. And we get busy with life. So there are three main things that I think I want to draw from this passage about assurance. And I'm only going to speak on them briefly. Uh, and these are things that we don't lose heart and we don't go back to fear in the day of judgment. The first would be love for our fellow believers. The second would be God's spirit dwelling in us. And the third would be by personally confessing Jesus as the son of God. And there are more assurances than this in the passage. So if you want, go free. Go through it. Look them up. These are great things. Really good truths. The first, so agape love for our fellow believers is a sign. In fact, it is evidence that you have been born again and know God. As love comes from God. I find that really scary. Particularly preaching that verse. Because now it means that as we all go away and examine our lives, do we see agape love there? And if we don't see agape love there, that says something about whether or not we're in a relationship with God. I would also say, please speak to someone else and say, can you see agape love in my life? Because sometimes we can't see the things that are there. Um, but so, so to love, you need to be in relationship with God. And if you don't know God, you can't love the same way. As we've already said, God's love is different to the love in the world. And we see glimpses of it in the world. Of course we do. We're made in his image. We're always made to experience that love and to be in that love. So we will see glimpses of it in that world. In the world. But we don't see it fully. But God wants that love to be perfected in us. So actually, as we're growing in that love and as it's re replicated in our lives, that should bring assurance to us that you are saved. That you will not suffer the full wrath of God on the day of judgment. Because it's evidence, it is evidence that Jesus is your Lord and Saviour and that you are being changed to be like him. Secondly, I want to talk about God's spirit dwelling in us. In verse 13 it says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. By no here, John is talking about experiencing the spirit's present and activity in our hearts. If you read Genesis at the beginning of the Bible, it talks about Adam knew his wife Eve. We know it means more than just a no. Right, actually, this is talking about God in us, God's activity in us, experiencing him. Phil Moore puts it like this. True assurance does not come from checking our notebooks. So that's using creeds as a, uh, as a checklist is what he's saying there. But by checking our hearts to see if our thoughts and actions prove that the miracle maker is alive in us. True assurance can never simply come through reciting biblical proof texts, but only through experiencing them in action as we sense God making his home in our hearts. So as we examine our hearts and see the Holy Spirit at work in us, this should bring us assurance of our salvation. God will only be dwelling in us and alive in us if we are saved, if he has paid the price for us. And thirdly, our assurance comes by faith. 
as we look at the historical evidence for Jesus, we look at the fact of his birth, his death and his resurrection and confess by faith that Jesus is the Son of God. It brings us assurance as it is only by the Spirit revealing to us that we can believe it. Which is so true. Because I have non-Christian friends who have read the Bible, who know the Gospel, and sometimes it can get frustrating that they keep asking me the same questions. I'm like, I've given you a good answer. <laughs> but I have to stay loving. I have to keep answering those questions. But therefore, we only know the truth because the Spirit has revealed it to us. And so that brings us assurance. It brings us assurance that actually we are saved. So as I said, these are just some of the assurances offered in this text. But let's use them to strengthen our faith. Let's use them, not even only when we're down, but let's go over them regularly and remind ourselves of who we are, that we are now children of God, saved by grace. And so finally, I want to look at what I've called the fruit of perfect love. And so I'm just going to read verses 17 to 21. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear casts out perfect love casts out fear. Oops. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, "I love God and hates his brother," he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him: Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So there are two areas I want to speak about from this last passage. I want to talk about no fear and making the invisible God visible. So looking at no fear. So the first fruit or benefits of perfect love in our lives is that with perfect love, there is no room for fear. So the fear of judgment is gone. That's a specific fear that we're talking about here. That actually... As the love of God is evident in our hearts and minds, as we are confident of that love, as we are assured of that love, fear of death has no place in our lives anymore. Why? Because we have a hope. Because we have a hope for a future. Life now is tough. It is difficult. There are times where it's great and it's fun and we enjoy it. But it is difficult, isn't it? Like we're living in a fallen world. And our hope is of this time where there is no more pain, no more sin, no more suffering, no more... The promise that comes to mind is when we see him, we will be like him. We will see him fully. We don't see God fully now, and yet we marvel at him. Then we will see him fully. So no longer do we need to fear. So actually, as we, we give ourselves to our relationship with God, really, and seeing his love in ever more depth and detail and understanding it ever more. Fear is just pushed out in the way. And then I also want to talk on making the invisible God visible. Yes, that's what I want to do. I'm sorry, I just confused for a second. Where I am. Yeah. yeah, so we're in a season of pruning as a church. 
we are definitely in a season of dreaming. <laughs> yep, no, I am right. It's completely throwing myself. So we're in a season of pruning as a church at the moment. But this is pruning by a loving Father, a loving God, in order that we may grow and flourish into all that God has for us. So how do we grow? There are two quotes I just want to read that um, I think really tie in with this. And one from Phil Moore says, Let's also note how vital John's emphasis is to our view of what it means to make more Christians. <coughs> our biggest need is not a more effective evangelistic technique, but a deeper personal experience of God. Evangelistic fruitfulness comes through our cooperation with the Holy Spirit, who comes to live inside of us. I'll read that again. So let us also note how vital John's emphasis is to our view of what it means to make more Christians. Our biggest need is not a more effective evangelistic technique, but a deeper personal experience of God. Evangelistic fruitfulness comes through our cooperation with the Holy Spirit, who has come to live inside of us. And John Stott says, The unseen God, who once revealed himself in his Son, now reveals himself in his people, if and when they love each other. So, the sense I get here is God wants us to grow in agape love. God wants this to be evident in our lives. And actually, so many of us, I think, find evangelism difficult, can find the fact that I think even though I know evangelism can be defined in so many different ways and the fact it's about our lives and how we live and how we reflect God I always still have in the back of my mind the thing of uh, people standing up on train train carts we're very old fashioned (laughs) Uh, and saying you all need to hear this God loves you and without him you're, you're going to be punished. You're going to hell. You, you need God in your life. Because actually, you're sinful. Or standing on a street corner, standing up on a soapbox and shouting out. Like These are the images that come to my mind still. And, and I find that difficult. And actually, for me, this passage is amazingly freeing. Because what it's saying is, as we love God, as we give ourselves to relationship with God, His love becomes evident in us and in us as a community, which reveals God in the most powerful way possible. And that is our evangelism, or part of our evangelism. So actually, part of how we grow as a church, I think, is giving ourselves to this agape love, is giving ourselves to this love as a community that people should come in and they should see that we lay down our lives for each other. And this isn't something that we can manipulate. And if we try to do just in of ourselves, it will fail. But it comes, as it says here, out of relationship with him. So actually, as a church, we need to be seeking him with our whole heart and giving ourselves to deeper relationship and intimacy with God. And that, the natural overflow of that will be this agape love in our lives that binds us together as a community. And we will reveal him. So as we do this, the invisible God that was made visible in Christ will be made visible in us, his church. So 
I believe this will cause growth to come as non-Christians can see ever more clearly through us that we are the body of Christ because Christ is evident in us. Just remember, Jesus tells his disciples, by this all people, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So I'm just going to quickly conclude. And I think... Something stood out to me over the last few weeks. It stood out to me at growth group. It stood out to me on Sunday mornings. It stood out to me again as I was preparing this preach. That relationship with God is key to living a faith-filled Godward life that glorifies him and sees the lost saved. That's what we've seen in this passage today, isn't it? As we respond to God's love, put our faith in him, his love will grow in us and overflow through us, revealing more of who he is to the world around us. And so, in love, I just want to encourage you to ask yourself this question. Is God's love currently evident in your life? Is this agape love currently evident in your life? If it isn't, like I say, maybe speak to someone else and say, do you see this evident in my life? But if it isn't, you need to seriously think, why is this not evident in my life? We can't fall short. We can't just think, oh, I can't really see it. You know, I'm saved. That's what life is. We need to take God's word seriously. So let's truly examine that. And if it is, how can you grow more in this love? How can you grow more? For me recently, I just quite very, very quickly share this. God's taught me to pause in life. He showed me a picture of a pause button. And I've just found that it's not just about intimate times, one-on-one times with God, reading my Bible, praying, worshipping, whatever that may look like for you. But actually, there's always something to do. The phone is always there. There's always things on Facebook, always people saying things. There's always... <laughs> actually, God has just taught me that, to almost just press the pause button throughout my day and just to stop and just rest in him, just for a few minutes, even if it's just 30 seconds. But it's stopping that habit... And that habit is there, I have to say, of, oh, you know, nothing to do right now, I'll just look at my phone. So I found that very helpful. So here's a quote from Tom Wright that I'd just like to finish with. Love incarnate must be the badge that the Christian community wears. The sign not only of who they are, but of who their God is. I'll read it one more time. Love incarnate must be the badge that the Christian community wears. The sign not only of who they are, but of who their God is.